Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Clinical Pharmacist podcast. If you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. We discuss various topics related to pharmacists in primary care. My name's Runa, and I'm the host of the podcast. I am the founder of Clinical Pharmacist Academy and the clinical lead of Clinical Pharmacist Solutions. So today we are continuing our clinical series where we focus on one disease area per episode. And today's topic is all about DOACs. And to join me on this discussion, firstly, we have my co-host, uh, Rahina Kassam, who is an experienced IP pharmacist in primary care. She's part of the management team of CPS, where she oversees a deployment of around 60 pharmacists across various GP practices and is involved in the induction and training of our new starters. Welcome, Rahina, and thank you for joining me. Hi, Rina. Uh, yeah. And of course, we have our guest speaker with us. We have Angelina Solomon, who's kindly joining us today. Angelina is a senior IP pharmacist with a number of years of experience in primary care. Angelina's completed her IP in the clinical area of AS and anticoagulation in 2021. Uh, thank you, Angelina, for joining us and welcome. Thank you for having me. Hi, Runa. Hi, Rahina. Hi, thank you for joining us. Right. Okay. So I think maybe just to start off with, before we get into it, Angelina, tell us a little bit more about yourself. So our audience has an idea of how you got to where you are now, a little bit about your career history and how you got into, you know, with your interest in AS and anticoagulation. Yeah. So I started as a pharmacist back in 2014, initially in community pharmacy and a bit of outpatient pharmacy and chemotherapy screening. And after a bit, I wanted a new challenge. So I thought I'd go into primary care. So that all started in 2019. I joined as a PCN um, pharmacist in Horsham Central PCN, really enjoyed my role. And it was, it was really eye-opening to how important having a clinical pharmacist in GP practices and what you can add and how much learning you also need to do. So straight, my first task happened to be in one of the smaller surgeries, looking at all the patients on warfarin and seeing if they could be on a DOAG. It wasn't something I'd done before. I was quite overwhelmed when I was asked to do it, but thought, let me give this a go. So that's where it all started. A few weeks after that, I was then asked to look at reviewing all of the patients that were on DOAC. So slowly but surely, I was in this DOAC realm that I didn't realize I was going into, but actually quite enjoyed it. And since then, that's been something I've been interested in and slowly began confident in doing them. So from there, I then decided in 2021, I was going to do my IP and that was the sort of norm for me. It felt very natural to go into that area. I feel like there's a lot that pharmacists and pharmacy techs can actually do in that area. So that's where it all started. But alongside DOACs, I do, of course, do everything else in terms of medication reviews and um, queries that you would in primary care. And I joined um, CPS about four months ago, so thoroughly enjoying it. Okay, fantastic, Angelina. Thank you for sharing that. And it's been absolutely lovely since you've joined us four months ago. You've sort of been our go-to person for DOACs and anticoagulation and AF. And of course, as you said, you do do a variety of other things. You've actually helped us to deliver some training programs in this area as well, where we've had pharmacists, technicians and nurse prescribers attend as well, something that was arranged through some training hubs. So that's been really helpful as well. So hopefully you can shed some light on this area. I'm sure you've got a thing or two to say about DOACs. So as we know, DOACs has been, you know, a hot topic in the last few years. And you've been doing a lot of work around DOACs over the last couple of years. Recently, we have seen a lot of change from warfarin to DOACs. Can you explain, you know, why this is and, you know, what are the benefits for switching from warfarin to DOACs? 
Yeah, so initially on those first consultations discussing with patients the switch, they were quite reluctant, but but you can see the change over the last few years and that's been guided through a few things. So the pandemic has definitely helped that. So back in 2020, we were all reluctant to go to places that were crowded. So people started to not want to go to their INR monitoring, wanted to go away from going to the, the departments to get their blood tested or to the surgeries. So there was that um, openness to consider a DOAC with blood monitoring being potentially less than INRs. And then swiftly after that, in about 2021, the guidance from NICE changed to actually recommend DOACs over warfarin where you can. The guidance pre that was very different. So clinicians were also a bit more open to doing that. And there was that push to move patients over and patients were more willing to. Again, another element that helped patients was the fact that where there used to only be an antidote for dabigatran, so a reversal agent for dabigatran and not with the other DOACs, that slowly now is coming through being licensed for for more DOACs. So that's really encouraging patients because that was always a drawback with, with DOACs. So there's been quite a lot of change. So both clinically and for patients with things like the pandemic affecting that. Perfect, Angelina. So you can definitely see how passionate you are about working with DOACs and the changes that you've been working on, as well as the training that you've been delivering as well. So when you're having that consultation with the patient, how would you explain the benefits of the switches to the patient and just ensure that they're monitored and followed up correctly? Yeah, so I'd always explain to them the pros and cons. So the the main benefits are that you're not going to have to come in for the INR regularly. For some people, that's actually a bit of a drawback because they're quite used to that. They have that reassurance and they like to come into the surgery. So I say, actually, yes, you're not going to have the INR, but you will have monitoring because we do need to make sure it's the correct dosage. In most cases, it's not going to be as frequent as the INR. And I would reassure them that later on in the conversation, if they're happy to, we'll discuss how often the monitoring will be. I also let them know that interactions, which they're often very happy to hear, a lot less interactions to do with um, drug-drug interactions and with DOACs compared to warfarin, also less drug interactions with food and alcohol as well when it comes to using DOACs over warfarin. A caveat to that, I explained that, yes, although there's a lot less interactions, there are still some interactions. So many of them really want to go for that NSAID and have an ibuprofen for for the achy joint. I explained that actually that's still going to be um, something that they'll have to avoid. So they're the main advantages that I start off with, as well as explaining that actually you're going to have a set dose each day and it's not going to be changing as often as it would have been with the warfarin. So that's often a, a nice advantage to look forward to. Definitely. So you can really see the real benefits for patients there. So as with anything, there's some ideal patients for making this change. Who would that cohort of patients be? And what do you actually need to think about as a pharmacist before going ahead to make that switch for that patient? Yeah, so there's a few things to consider. Um, So not all patients will be appropriate to have a DOAC over warfarin. And so prior to making those calls, I often just check through the notes as well as checking with them when I speak to them. So the main things I'm looking out for is, do they have something called antiphospholipid syndrome? If they do, it's not, DOACs aren't licensed for that patient cohort. So straight away, I sort of put that to one side and think, actually, this is not not appropriate. I look at their kidney function as well. So we know that the majority, so three of the DOACs, all but dabigatran, are licensed for creatinine clearance up to 15. But anything lower than that, they're not going to be appropriate. So warfarin would be your only option, really. And dabigatran is a little bit different because it's more renally cleared. The creatinine clearance, the lowest it can be is 13 in order to be appropriate. 
So I take my creatinine clearance. If we're very close to that 15-ish mark, it's probably not worth it to make that switch for the patient. The other cohort of patients is if they have what we call um, valvular AF, they wouldn't be appropriate. So to put that into perspective, that would be anyone that has moderate to severe mitral stenosis or has a mechanical heart valve. And it's really important to sort of stress the mechanical heart valve. It's not just because they've had a heart valve replaced, it doesn't mean that they can't have a DOAC. It has to be of, of metallic nature. If it's sort of bovine or, or from, an, from an animal, that's absolutely fine. So they're the main reasons, as well as other, other reasons, such as if they've got severe bleeding or conditions that put them at high risk of bleeding, you would avoid a DOAC in those states as well. Thank you, Angelina. And I think it's important that I think you went over the heart valve, the, has, the fact that it has to be uh, mechanical. So I think, you know, the way you've explained it, it's quite a few patients, I think, are, you know, eligible for the switch and support to understand it's just a mechanical heart valve, as you mentioned, because I think sometimes some pharmacists might turn patients away thinking, no, they've, they've got a heart valve. But uh, but that, that's nice that you've um, You've highlighted that. So once you have made the switch, what are the main counselling points that the patients should be aware of? Okay, so I explained to them that a lot of the things that would um, relate to warfarin will relate to the DOAC as well. So things like if they were to have a hit to the head or fall over and hit their head, still important to go to A&E. It's still a blood thinner like warfarin. So I try and look at the common ground as well and just reiterate it. I explain that they will bleed a little bit longer than the norm if they cut themselves. But anything beyond about 10 minutes after they've put pressure on the area, then actually A&E is an appropriate place to go to. Again, I explain with the similarities that you used to carry a yellow book. You won't need to carry that, but there is a safety warning card that's in your DOAC. Carry that in your wallet or purse. So those are sort of the similarities. And then I go on to the differences. I say, actually, DOACs are a little short-lived in the system. So they've got shorter half-lives compared to warfarin. So it's really important to take it regularly. So if it's a once a day dose, um, so we've got two of the once a day DOACs available and two of the twice a day. So I reiterate if it's once a day or twice a day, I explain to them what happens if they miss a pill. So with the once a day tablet, if it's longer than 12 hours, then really they should just miss the dose and, and take the next one when it's due. Twice a day, they've got a six hour window to remember to take it. I always go over what the brand name is as well, because they often get confused if the PAX is a different name to what we've been talking about. So they're the main thing. I explain if they have to take it with food or not. So with Rivaroxaban, it's very important, whilst with the others, it isn't. But yeah, and check if they're going to use a blister pack. If they are, then we know Dabigatran is not, not appropriate. So I just go through those points and always make sure that if they buy any medication over the counter, check with the pharmacist check with any healthcare professional and let them know that you're on a DOAC before any surgery. But often with Warfarin, they're very aware of that. So yeah, they're the main points. And then I do print off a form and ask them if they'd like some printed documentation to their address, because it is a lot of information to go through and quite overwhelming initially, I think, for a patient. Yeah, I can, I can imagine how it can be. But thank you for going through all of that. I think you've mentioned uh, quite a few things that pharmacists could take away and apply in practice. What tips can you give to a pharmacist that's just starting out um, doing direct reviews and switching? How would you advise them to go about it? So I'd always recommend to use templates. So you've got the Arden's templates on most of the systems. They're really helpful, especially if you're doing a DOAC review. It reminds you of all the questions. It allows you to sort of tick boxes rather than type it all out. And then it codes everything appropriately. So the surgery are also reimbursed where you've done the work. Before any DOAC review or any switching, I always just take a few minutes to go through the notes. 
check when the last blood test was done, check when the last weight was done. Generally, sort of within the last three months is close enough to be able to make an appropriate decision, especially with switching. So yeah, if I was to do a DOAC review, I'd go through the notes first, see if they've had their blood tests done, how often should their bloods be according to their creatinine clearance. Is there any concerns in terms of interactions on their repeat that I can spot? And then I go ahead and call them. And on the flip side for switching, I'll go through all the contraindications before ringing and make sure there's nothing like that on there. Read a few cardiology letters if it's to do with AF. And actually really worth mentioning patients on DOAX for DVT prevention, because that's another indication, just to be sure they're actually on the right dose. Because often, say with a Pixaban, after say six months, they should reduce to 2.5. And that's a common error that we find that doesn't happen. So they're the things I would say do first and then speak to the patient and you'll have your notes ready there. Perfect. And I think that's really actually very valuable insights there that you've given us, Angelina, because not only have you mentioned from what the patient needs to know, what the pharmacist needs to be advising the patient, but you've also said as well in terms of templates, what the practice is going to be looking for and making sure that you're coding appropriately as well, because you're making sure that you're going through all these things with the patient. So I think that that's really thorough there. When you're doing these reviews as well, Angelina, are you finding that there's any particular resources that you use more frequently, any good resources that you find that help you with your consultations? Yeah, so I generally use the NICE guidance, CKS guidance. As well as that, I use the European um, Society of Cardiology documents. They're quite lengthy and wordy, but if there's a point where I think, oh, I'm, I'm not sure about this or they've got a particular condition, I'll go through that because it's often very thorough. The other thing I would do is I often use something called the Spark Tools, worth having a look if I'm unsure which DOAC to put a patient on. It just helps put everything out as a percentage, which DOAC is more likely to cause bleeding for that patient. And often patients want a few percentages. I'm finding less so now and that DOACs are more of a thing, but previous especially, they, they wanted to know how they'd fare compared to warfarin in terms of bleeding. There's also a very helpful document that was produced during COVID about switching from um, warfarin to DOACs that was endorsed by the RPS. I always have that on because that's got all the counselling points there about the differences and also puts all the doses nicely in a table. So they're the, the main ones I would use. Perfect. And then... Also, you've got all the local guidelines as well. So I think a lot of the ICBs do their own guidance. And I think over COVID, a lot of them came out, came out with them too. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you for that. So another hot topic that we've seen recently is the change to adoxaban. So could you explain to us a little bit about why this is the preferred switch and how you're tackling these consultations as well? So recently, it's been shown that adoxaban has a lower acquisition cost. So it basically is a more cost-effective option in terms of the DOAC. So there has been a bit of a push in different areas, and I'd say the majority of areas to switch over to adoxaban. It's one of those that you can see, sort of see the pros and cons of the consultation. I think at the end of the day, as long as the patient is at the center of the decision, then that's always helpful. So I know that if I'm going to put a patient on a DOAC for the first time or switching them from warfarin, if they're happy with it once a day, then adoxaban will be the one that I would, would recommend. But I will explain that there is also rivaroxaban and explain the pros and cons. Where it becomes a little bit trickier is if someone is already on a DOAC and you're having that consultation to switch over. So I explain to them that adoxaban is more widely used at the moment. And, and if they ask why, I do explain it's a cost. It's to do with the NHS and it's a more cost-effective option. It will still be as effective for their treatment. Um, if they're happy to go ahead and switch, then that's absolutely fine. The easier switches are, of course, patients that are already on rivaroxaban to switch over to a once a day. 
bit trickier when they're on twice a day, but it's still doable. So I put the pros and cons to them and let them make that decision. More often than not, they're happy to do that. But yeah, if, if they're opposed to it, I don't, I don't sort of push them. I give them all the choices and then let them make that decision. Fantastic. Thank you, Angelina. So I think we've covered quite a lot. We've covered why we switch, how we switch all the different counseling points, which patients are suitable, which one may not be suitable. So uh, thank you, Angelina. Um, I think you've covered uh, quite a lot for us and uh, hopefully any pharmacist or technician or even nurse who is watching uh, can take away that information and implement some of that in their practice. If anyone is interested in learning a little bit more or anyone would like to utilize some of the training that we have and get it arranged through your training hubs, please do get in touch and can provide you with more information. And we do have a free resource that we will make available to everyone. It's a standard operating procedure for how to conduct DOAC reviews. Our pharmacists and technicians have found it very useful. It also contains a script of what to say to a patient when you're counseling them. Because I think sometimes, especially if you're brand new to the role, sometimes it can be difficult to find the words. So keep an eye out for that. That will be released. And we also have a general training program that's designed for pharmacists and technicians that teaches you all about how to do DOAC reviews. We also have an in-depth training program, which will be coming out, which will cover more about how to do the switches in more detail. So keep an eye out for that on our academy. So I think that that's all we've got time for. Angelina, thank you again. Thanks thank for you. joining us and sharing your expert advice. And thank you, Rahina, for joining me again. Thank you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone. Take care and bye-bye.